Dear diary. Dear diary. Wow. Today was a really hard day. Dear diary, I find sometimes my life can be hard. Dear diary, it will pass and it will be okay. Dear diary, I feel like today is going to be. Shh. The Indigo Diaries. Dear diary, welcome, world, to the Indigo Diaries. First, let me introduce myself. My name is Tasha Hicklin and I'm the host of this podcast, The Indigo Diaries. Welcome back. And this is actually the first one of officially in 2021. Thank you to everyone for coming in and listening. If this is your first time, then welcome. If you're returning, then welcome back. This episode will be continuing of series one. We now have series two, which is called The World Through a Trainee's Coach is Eyes with me, Tasha Hicklin. And you can come along with a journey of me going through a course in ADHD coaching. But I'm so excited to introduce our first guest, so I'm going to stop going on and officially, the first official one of 2021, this lady is someone that I have recently met, quite recently actually, in my group Indigo, but I was instantly drawn to her kind and spirited nature. So let me tell you a bit about her. Miriam Levi Gordon was born in 1963 to a highly traumatized parents because they were narcissists they couldn't allow Miriam to develop at all. She grew up in a small apartment in Fort Lee, New Jersey, USA, as a shadow of herself, in pure survival mode, completely out of touch of her soul. Miriam received a diagnosis of inattentive ADHD when she was 49 years old. Getting the diagnosis was a relief in that it explained the retrospect a lot of the difficulties she had had in life. She currently lives with Stephen and their adorable white poodle, Miriam's first ever dog, Snowy, in a single family home, Miriam and Stephen's first house that they own in West Hempstead, New York, USA, on the south shore of Long Island. Miriam is unable to work in any sort of neurotypical environment, so she continues her life work in therapy and to research and write about experiences she's learned about her life experiences in her journal, which she hopes to develop into a published writing at some point. Her ultimate goal is to be able to share her life experiences with others who are or have been experienced the great misfortune that she has in the hope of helping them. If you would like to see her full bio, please look in the description below. So Miriam, I welcome you to the Indigo Diaries. Thank you, Tasha. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to do this with you, really. And mm-hmm. me and Miriam have actually been trying to get get this together. We got together like a few times. One time the internet wasn't working, then I was ill. We've been trying to get this together, so I'm very excited that we're together. So it's just such a pleasure to have you here. And I have to tell everyone that it's just, I really like it when you really get with someone and you just know, you know, I always ask people what they want to begin in their pre-interview. So when we do our pre-interview, and Miriam was actually the first person who knew exactly where she wanted to start. And I remember saying, I want to go from chronological order. So, Miriam, let's go from the beginning. You tell your story. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, I think that I need to start with the story about my mother's life because not not the whole, just the parts Mm -hmm. that that made a really huge impact on my upbringing. Um, My mother had an extremely tragic life. Um, Her real mother 
uh, for whom I'm named, Miriam, um, died when my mother, Grace, was five years old. She had one other younger sister uh, from, from her, the same mother. Um, and um, what happened was, um, now my, my mother's grandfather, um, my great-grandfather was a, uh, a big rabbi. Um, and um, I think Miriam came over when, yeah, I, I, Miriam came over with her new husband, Chilibi, who lived, who also lived in Turkey. My, uh, my family originally was living in Izmir, Turkey. Oh, okay. It was a big center of Jewish life and activity at that time in the 1920s. Mm -hmm. um, so um, they came over to Atlantic City, um, you know, as a young couple. Well, there were a lot of other young Sephardic Jewish couples from from the Turkish um, Turkish area where they were living. Um, so a lot of immigrants from there. Okay. And um, but what happened was after uh, Miriam died tragically, I believe it was in childbirth, giving birth to their third child. Oh wow. Um, uh, the you know the family obviously came together to figure out what to do. So um, uh, my great-grandfather, uh, my, um, Miriam's father, uh, had, they had five daughters. And um, so the second oldest daughter, it was agreed after much discussion to, that she would marry um, my, uh, my grandfather. Um, his name was Chilibi. Uh, it's a very Turkish name. Yeah, I was about um, to say. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a Turkish name, um, and um, so they actually, I believe that Rabbi Rabbi Katan, that was my great grandfather, went over to Paris with with Esther, that was the second oldest daughter, his second oldest daughter, and. Um, Chilibi also met, they met in Paris and they got married there. I believe they were married by my grandfather. Um, but unfortunately, um, I think that a lot, of, a lot of the problems came from the trauma of migration. And I do think that um, my mother and all her siblings and my grandfather and probably my, my great-grandfather and my great-grandmother, I think there's a genetic legacy of highly high sensitivity and empathy, mm -hmm. um, which which does it's it, it could if if people with these traits are raised in an, a supportive home, um, they can do very well. This is all according to Elaine Aaron, who wrote the highly sensitive person. Great book. Um, yes, yeah, it's it, I've found it to be indispensable. Um, Me too. And um, so, unfortunately, it was a, my, my mother, I mean, she was basically an enraged, um, terrified five-year-old girl. Uh, I guess by the time Esther came into the picture and married her father, 
she was probably about six or seven. And um, I don't think, you know, my, uh, one of the several therapists I've seen in my life told me when I told her this story that you, you don't heal from something like that. Of course you can, it, it has such a, you know, being an orphan at such a young age yeah. is, is too traumatic to not affect the rest of one's life. Doesn't mean you can't do anything about it, but it's, 100%, yeah. it's, it's, it's really one of the most traumatic things that can happen uh, to a child. Um, so anyway, the, Esther and um, my mother did not get along from the very beginning. Um, so she was raised by the quote unquote evil stepmother. Um, and when my mother, my mother, my, my mother finally, uh, her, her younger sister from who was also from the same mother, Miriam, um, her name was Becky and Becky in her early thirties developed breast cancer. So my mother was, uh, you know, constantly that the stress of that compounded with living else, yeah. uh, And, um, you know, so it actually, it's, I don't know why this is, seems to be the truth, but it seems that human beings can really only change when they've had a terrible, terrible shock or gone through some terrible terrible trauma, that that's when change really happens. It's not, you know, not one after the other. You have one after the other, forget it. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. But um, sometimes, why is it, you know, it, 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 I, it makes me think of um, when a child is born, at least in Western medicine, mm-hmm. they take the kid, they take the newborn baby by the feet, hang it upside down and smack its bottom. I mean, hello world. <laughs> it's why 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 do we have such why are we such tough nuts to crack you know why does it have to be so awful usually I mean um anyway so when my mother my Becky my mother went to New York that's where she met my father at the 92nd street Y. they had a big program for Jewish singles and so they made up to get married. Now, Becky died um, in February wow. of 1961. Oh my goodness. My mother got married in September 1961. She never really put the, the whole thing together for me. I had to piece it together after, um, you know, uh, all the, you know, my mother was the last of all the siblings to pass. She passed away four years ago. My father passed away almost 30 years ago. Um, But um, uh, so they got married in September of 61. And I have pictures from their wedding. And there were no guests other than the immediate family. And that they my mother explained to me was that she they were all uh, in mourning. Uh, This is a special mourning period in Jewish law that um, well, for a parent, anyway, I, I guess for a sibling, it's a year where you can't have any, you can't participate in any public celebrations. Oh, okay. Um, so uh, anyway, uh, Esther, now Esther 
I'm, I'm, I don't know what kind of mental illness she had, but um, she was mean. She was incredibly mean. I mean, you know, my mother, when she was a child, was probably very mean to Esther, but mm. in a, a, in a mature adult would have been able to understand. Understand that, yeah. They would understand that she's a child and doesn't know anything else. Yeah, no, Esther mm. didn't... <laughs> Well, you know, I wasn't there, but she reacted yeah, like yeah, most yeah. uneducated people would. And she would argue that she's very educated. You know, in, in, in that Turkish society, the Turkish Jewish society that she came from, um, having a secular education was considered um, a high status thing for Jewish right. women. But it, in, along with that, the extreme... Uh, you know, the reputation of a woman, uh, because, you know, uh, secular learning is, you know, uh, associated with being more worldly and going out into the world. And, you know, for a a society like that, that was so uh, deeply religious and deeply uh, sexually repressed, Mm -hmm. um, the women went out of their way to um, negate any possible smear on their reputation. Um, And it came out as like Puritanism practically. Um, So my mother, she got married and um, Esther just keep getting meaner and meaner she refused uh she and she she ruled the family with an iron fist I think my grandfather was just through his whole life with her just kept his head down and shut up because she was so she couldn't stand not being complete control um she at Chilibi and uh, Esther had two children my my mother and Becky's stepbrother and stepsister um Isaac was the youngest and Rita was uh, Esther and Chilibi's oldest. Um, and the Esther, uh, Rita and Isaac never married because they spent their life taking care of their mother. Mother, yeah. She was so demanding that she controlled everything about their lives. And my mother dared to get married. Um, you know, she wouldn't tolerate that. And she did not approve of, of my, my father. And um, Rita actually tried to fly the coop at one point. She went to Israel where we have family. And um, my cousin Ellie there tried to fix her up, you know, on dates. Mm. But Rita wouldn't go on any dates because she said my mother wouldn't approve. My mother wouldn't approve. She never got married. This, as far as I'm concerned, Esther stole life from her children. And my mother escaped by a miracle. Um, and um, the worst part, the worst thing was when my, my mother gave birth to me, my grandfather had the temerity. Uh, and this is probably the one time or so in his life that he stood up to Esther. He came up to New York uh so when i was born 
to be there. He refused. Esther refused, and she wouldn't let Isaac or Rita, who were both adults by that point, go with him. Um, And when he came back to Philadelphia late, she forbade her husband and her two children from ever visiting my mother. Don't talk to them. You don't visit them. Meanwhile, I was a newborn baby. My father, you know, my mother was always complaining to my father about this. Not always, but he knew that she was very upset about it. And um, he said, one day he said, that's it. We're going. I don't care what they say. We're going. This is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So when, when my mother walked in with me in her arms, little baby me, (sighs) Esther said, get ready for this. this is really bad. She said it in Ladino, so my father would not understand. Ladino is a Spanish dialect that was spoken by Jews in Turkey. Um, She said, look, they brought their little piece of filth with them. Oh, my goodness. That's what she said. My mouth is literally open right now. That is absolutely disgraceful. Yeah. You know, it's it's ironic that my mother's name is Grace. It really is. It really is. Um, There's poetry in that. It really is. Um, But can you imagine? No, I I can't. Just the thought of someone even like in your life that would have said that is just unthinkable. It's horrible. Yeah. But unfortunately, if you look at pictures, my, uh, my, my father liked to do photography. And because of him, I have really good pictures. Uh, but they're, they, they're really good because they really show the real emotion behind it. My mother always, almost always looked terrified, stressed, anxious, bored. Um, she was so alone. Most people, when they have children, they have family around them, they have friends around them, they have a community around them. But not, not my parents. It, um, and my father was also from a very, very troubled family. Um, uh, just, you know, Eastern Europe, his, uh, I think he was, I think he was um, second generation American or third generation. Um, But, um, you know, the immigration is extremely hard on people uh, who, it's hard on everybody, but particularly difficult for people who are empathic, highly sensitive, and, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, with, so intergenerational trauma has really been, it's really come together as the focus of my work. Um, and so I had to start from there. Yeah. Well, thank you. I just wanted to say that, how do you think that I really, that's, I I was going to say it's really refreshing, but that's probably the wrong term to use. It's just really honest. And I thank you for sharing that with us because it's, I think it's trauma is a huge thing that people really don't discuss when it comes to people with ADHD or just people in general. Um, people would seem to really, so I, I, I really uh, applaud your courageousness for coming on for saying this. How do you, how do you think that all that impacted your childhood? Um, my mother, so this is the part where, um, look, I don't, I'm not a psychologist. I don't know what makes 
of course. goes into making a person a narcissist because there may be genetic components, but that uh, I would imagine that uh, environment has a lot more to do with it uh, yeah. than genetic tendency. I mean, there are things like mental illnesses like schizophrenia, which have a definite genetic yeah, obviously, yeah. Uh, protocol. But um, I don't think, you know, I think that um, I de- my, my father, I'm sure had ADHD. My mother, I'm not so sure, um, but um, you know, I was born in 1963. Nobody talked about this. Meanwhile, if you look at the research, it was around. Yes, it was it around, was. but just nobody talked about it. it. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, minimal brain dysfunction. That's yeah, I hate was. that. That's the what I learned about that recently, and it was just the worst mm-hmm. thing. That's yeah. just horrendous. I know. I, I heard your your uh, podcast on that. <laughs> This is horrendous. Um, yes, yes. Well, the reason, you know, the reason that I'm being so honest about this, first of all, I don't have children to embarrass. Uh, <laughs> um, second of all, recovering from this is my life's work. I mean, I have a PhD in developmental biology. Wow. But that's Incredible. not my life's work. It couldn't be. I would have liked it to be, but it couldn't be because I had to become a whole person out of a, a shell. What happened was my mother was so bereft and so desperate to have a loving family of her own. She didn't know the difference between keeping me, it was, I was just, as a narcissistic parent does, they make the child an extension of themselves and their needs and um, that's what she did with me. She, I think I worked out recently, um, and this is, a, a, I've done for the past couple of years, a lot of inner child work, uh, with okay. my therapist and, um, it keeps coming back. That was really powerful because it keeps coming back to, um, uh, you know, from the time I was born, my mother um, had a very strong resistance to my uh, expressing any in any sort of independent, not independence, but like a, a baby has, you know, you know, needs and it's, it's taking in the world around it. What I was taking in and you know, the mother and child bond is, is, is crucial. Yeah it's, yeah. it's a huge part of development for a child. Yes. Um, I, I'm sure with my high sensitivity and my empathic tendencies that I picked up every little tiny feeling. Cause I do, I've always been someone who just absorbs. Yeah. Absorbs everything. everything. Yeah. Yes. yes. Moods. Um, troubles, energy. And I think that, you know, like about, this was probably a, a close to 10 years ago, I read this book by Amy Tan called The, uh, the Kitchen God. Amy Tan is a best-selling author okay. uh, of, of several books, but there was, um, in it, there was a, um, excuse me for a sec. I need some water. It's okay. <laughs> You're all good. Um, thank you. Um, so 
so in in this book, uh, there was this um, was set in China, and in World War II, there was um, this guy, young man who became a terrible alcoholic, but he was also a pilot <laughs> in the, the mm. Chinese army, I guess. But on the times when he came home, he would become so violent when, uh, uh, you know, when he came home, uh, you know, beat up his wife, but, but his child, baby, he, they just, uh, in the book, it describes where this, this violent, angry, crazy, out of control man comes home and the baby wanted to cry. And the instant she heard him, she sort of six months old, curled up into a little ball. She, Amy Tan describes this in detail. And it, that, it curled up into a little ball and made these tiny little whimpers. And I, I, I keep thinking, I've thought about that many times over the years and why it, mm. would, why it would impact me so strongly. And I'm, I realized my mother must have, I must, I must have felt from my mother very strongly she didn't want me to cry. If I, you know, yeah, baby yeah, cry yeah. for normal reasons. Yeah, I think it troubled her so much for me to cry that she couldn't tolerate it. And I think I stopped. And, you know, it's interesting when I was, I don't know, probably in my late thirties or so, um, you know, my uh, therapist then asked me, or she, she mentioned to me, Miriam, you know, my other clients cry a lot. You don't cry at all. Why do you think that is? At the time, I was like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking about that too. It, there's so much yeah. that this inner child work exposed. And I really, and this hit me like a, a wrecking ball. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I cried recently. This is recent. I cried for several days. And it's really true. I don't cry. Because I, what I developed was, I think, a lot of emotional dead zones. And if I can, I can show you pictures of my parents taking me on outings when I was, an, you know, an, a baby. And um, I'm, I'm, I have this look on my face, like, very troubled. Mm. <laughs> it's not a happy child. No, that's not. But I just, I, it's just so strange that, like, you still today, you're still learning things about your about you passing it's so how did you as you grow up and you you got into your teens how and like I don't how did you manage all of this kind of all of this pressure and all this stuff of your trauma how what was kind of how did you kind of start on this discovery well um I think that well it didn't happen for a long time I can't understand I can't there's something in me that I can't explain that keep that kept driving me to figure things out. I was born like that. I mean, I asked mm-hmm. my parents a lot of questions. Um, and um, you know, I I I the um psychiatrist who diagnosed me with ADHD when I was 49 years old, he said that probably happened was that. I used my intelligence to get around the obstacles that uh, were put in my way. And I was 
you know, my father, uh, you know, he was also, both my parents were very bright. Um, and uh, my father was a, an electrical engineer and he was very scientific and I was very scientific. I was really interested in biology from a very early age. Clearly. Um, <laughs> what, you too? No, I said clearly because what you went on to do, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I love science. I always love science. Uh, but um, let's see. Uh, so, so basically what happens, and I've read about this a lot too. I've written about it a lot. It just it's all in my journal right now, but this is what, what I want to ultimately, you know, write stuff like about this, this kind of stuff. Um, that um, what happens when you, when someone, especially a child undergoes that trauma, they automatically sort of figure out, and this, this, be, this is on a more primitive brain level. It just becomes a matter of survival. Yep. And survival mode, yeah. Mm -hmm. So nothing about this was conscious. I developed all of these, these defense mechanisms subconsciously. Yeah. I knew I could not do anything to express myself, to, um, you know, uh, I was, cause I was terrified. I was, and my father, my father had a, a part in this too, because, and my mother just, my mother in, sometimes must've been terrified of my father because he went into these horrible rages and he was slam things and, um, you know, curse and, you know, I don't think he ever hit my mother. I don't, I never, I don't remember seeing anything like that. Mm. Um, and I don't believe he hit me as a child. Uh, and it, you know, when I was older, I think he, he uh, smacked me with a belt a couple of times. Uh, and he once, he once, uh, I was, we, we lived in a two bedroom apartment with one bathroom for the four of us. Oh my goodness. And when a little kid, when they're you know, just babies and it's manageable, but not when they're four. No. I mean, two adults, two adolescents, it's basically four adults. Yeah. Um, and I was taking too long sitting on the toilet one day for his liking. He came right in and slapped me across the face. Um, he really couldn't contain his rage. Yeah. He wanted certain things and he just wanted that my mother would go along with it and she didn't. And I can tell you that she, there were many times where he, come, he came home furious and she just threw me under the bus. And as a result, um, the, the things, the horrific things he would say about me uh, and my sister, like um, just an example that I still remember when I was probably about six or so, he said, you'll be mush before you're 20 um, oh because we didn't go out and play or, you know, um, that wasn't nearly the worst thing. Uh, but, um, you know, it wasn't all bad. It wasn't all bad, but the, those first few years, which are incredibly critical mm. for healthy childhood development, were completely obliterated were oppressed yes go ahead yeah I agree and um we're gonna take a break 
um because I think we're both very thirsty (laughs) 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 lots of talking lots of listening and I just I have to applaud you yet again this complete honesty and I hope that you come back after the break and we're going to explore more into Miriam's life and and just you know hear more of her story and we're out If you would like any information on Indigo's support group, check out the website below for our link to our Facebook page or email at indigo.adhd2020 at gmail.com. If you would like to offer any comments or feedback or if you are interested in the world hearing your story, then please reach out either through the group or through our email said before have a good week check in again later indigos the indigo diaries and welcome back myself and miriam do what i do with most guests is end up talking off the screen and go ah we're not recording and we caught with some good stuff and we drank lots of water so we're feeling a bit better now so welcome back everyone if you didn't join us before the break we're speaking to Miriam and the first half was a lot about past trauma and parents and family dynamics okay and this half we were we got just got to the point where we were talking about the survival mode of being a child and and how that that's affected her through her life so so we'll start with kind of how you were diagnosed with ADHD and what how that kind of came about okay Sure. Um, so actually, I, I've been going to ther- to psychotherapy consistently for the past 40 years. Wow. I mean, every week, every week. There were, there were, you know, chunks of about six months yeah. at the most where I was without one. But other than that, for the most part, I, and most at, at least twice a week in the beginning when I was 25 and I started with this Freudian psychoanalyst that I had seen, I I wound up seeing for 20 years, not willingly, but um, it was three, it was three times a week at first because I was literally beside myself. I could Mm -hmm. barely, I needed that in order to function. But so I was, I, I, I finally got out of this woman's clutches when I was 45 years old and the psychoanalyst. Um, I mean, that's a sto- I'll, another story I can tell another time. But um, so I had to look for a new therapist. And so by that time I had already, um, when I was 43, uh, I, I um, got fired from my medical writing job. I was there for four years. I did, there were certain things I did very well but there were certain ADHD things that I just couldn't overcome. Yeah. I didn't understand that at the time. I didn't know. But um, so I, by then uh, that motivated me to say, well, if I can't, if I can't do this work, if I can't do do this type of work, then what the hell am I going to do? So I, I went online. This is, you know, internet research is my thing. (laughs) Um, I, I, I went online and I found this test, this career test called the Kiersey Temperament Sorter, 
which um, is based on the Myers-Briggs uh, personality types. There are 16 types. Yeah. Um, and so it's like a combined personality and career test, uh, which all of them should be, all career tests should be Yes, like they that. definitely but, should be, yeah. Yeah, um, but so I found out, I, I learned a lot from that. And when I read the results, I'm like, this is me. How do they know me? <laughs> it knew um, me. But it mentioned, the first thing I learned was that I was INFP, which in um, Myers-Briggs stands for intuitive, uh, introverted, intuitive, feeling and perceiving. Uh, I've, I've, I've learned more about it in the past that, you know, I haven't reviewed it in a while. So I'm not, mm. I'm not by any means an expert on it. But um, so I said, what, what's an introvert? So I started finding on the internet, what's an introvert. And then I found uh, the first book that really started all my, my, my research uh, on, you know, who I am and, and everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I found out from my, either my work or from that the test results itself. Uh, the first book I ever had uh, called The Introvert Advantage by, Bar by Marty Olson Laney. It was a great book. And I was like, wow, this is documented. There are people like me. <laughs> it's not just me that's retarded. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I really, I really, you know, I was always fighting a sense that I was really stupid. And, but at the same time, you know, there was always evidence, even when I was in grade school, my teachers didn't understand this is, and this is very typical experience for ADHD people. Um, they say, to, they would say to my parents, she's clearly not stupid. Yeah, so yeah. we don't know why she has trouble with this, uh, you know, um, and, uh, from that book, from the introverted, um, um, the introvert advantage book, I learned about Elaine Aaron's highly sensitive person. That was the next book I read, and so I just kept going on from there. I love that on and on writing. and on. Yes, yes. Um, so I, one of the things I learned from Elaine Aaron's book is that um, Jungian psychology is far more um, accepting of or receptive to um, introverts than Freudian psychology. And actually Jung and Freud, uh, they started working together, but eventually they, they split because their views were very, very different. Very different. Um, and um, Jung had a much more positive view of introverts. Freud had a very negative view of introverts and yeah. it was a good idea. It was really good that I got out of the clutches of that horrible Freudian psychologist I went to. Ah, you see? Knowledge. Yes. Yes. I started bringing the stuff I was learning to her. It mattered not a whit. All she wanted to talk about was what job are you going to do now? What are you going to do? You know, your husband's upset at you because you're not earning money. What are you going to do? What are you you can you can do this? Or you, you... Nothing. She wasn't listening to you. She wasn't hearing me. Yeah, and yeah. It was horrible. I can um, imagine. So I, I went to, I looked online for Jungian psychotherapists and there's something called the Jung Institute. 
the Jung Institute, and they have a referral service to Jungian psychologists. And so I found one through there and I went to her for a few years and I was very th thrilled that she understood HSPs, highly sensitive persons. And, but the, eventually it started, our conversations started, I mean, I guess I was, um, how was that? It's hard to remember whether I was working as a medical writer or whether I was still in graduate school. But, you know, I've had people say to me throughout my adult years, uh, you know, when they get, get angry at something that I did, they'll say, you're incompetent. Um, and um, I, I kept saying that to her in different ways. And, I, you know, without understanding you know, how, how to go on from there yeah, yeah. and fit into the, you know, a, a um, neurotypical society. Um, you know, eventually after about three years of seeing her and about three years of what I felt was mostly unproductive. I mean, it was always good to get stuff off my chest. Yeah, of I mean, course. I, yeah. But she said, I wonder if you I wonder if you might have ADHD. This was after three years. I'm like, it took her that long for her for it to dawn on her. So she she suggested that I take this test online. Um, that you know, if you score within a certain range, then it's very likely that you have ADHD. And um, it, I scored very likely to have ADHD. And so at that time, we were moving from. Um, Westchester County to Long Island, which is basically, um, you know, over some bridges. <laughs> and um, so, because Long Island is separated from the mainland. Yeah, basically. yeah, yeah. Um, so, <coughs> excuse me. Okay. Um, so I, when I got to, um, when I got to Long Island, um, that was when I found um, the psychologist, I mean, the psychiatrist who ultimately diagnosed me with ADHD. And so that, it was a big turning point in my life. Um, how do you think that it impacted kind of your life? You know, how did, when you were diagnosed, did, how, like how did it make you feel and was you really impacted by it? Um, I think I was very angry that I was like, wow, I had a whole lifetime where I was suffering from something that was understood or known mm. or, and, and yet I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. I was angry. I was really angry. But at the same time, it did give me a sense of peace and comfort because mm. I, I had an explanation yeah. for all the things that seemed to have gone very wrong. Yeah. Uh, in my professional life and in my personal life. Um, but, um, <coughs> sorry. Okay. Um, so it was anger and it was relief as well. And, you know, I, I don't, I think for a while I saw this psychiatrist as my therapist also, but 
he really wasn't a therapist. Yeah. I eventually had to find somebody else. Um, and I actually asked a friend uh, in my new neighborhood in West Hempstead if she knew of anybody. And that's how I met my current therapist. Um, and uh, she's fantastic. She's, she's not, she's a PsyD, which is a, just a type of psychology doctorate. And, um, you know, so she's had traditional training, but she also, she's, she's very bright. And she and I are very much on the same wavelength in terms of like, she understands all the, all the HSP and, uh, you know, yeah, INFP yeah. and... <laughs> you understand um, your terminology I like it <laughs> um well she she understands what it means um yeah. and she it was really with her was the first time that I did inner child work um yeah so it's been that long it took me that long to get to that point and probably you know because I was trying to function in the neurotypical world, I just did the best I could, you know? And, and basically, you know, if, and again, it was a survival mode. I, I just did what I had to do because I was always in a lot of psychic pain because there's always this very deep part of me that was festering under, under a, a load of, crap i mean my soul was mm. basically but i didn't know <laughs> you know um and since then you know i've, I've also uh i've read a number of books that have really impacted me and um so it, it it's just i think I needed to be, have a very, uh, a certain level of maturity in order, of inner strength in order to do this. Cause I was so decimated inside that, um, you know, it, it really took a long time and a lot of, you know, veering off in the wrong direction. Like mm. it was from analyst and, um, you know, even this uh, psychiatrist, um, he eventually acted in a way that I said, bye. Yeah, goodbye. I, I know what I want and it's not you. Yeah. Um, so, and a lot of painful stuff. Um, you know, uh, my relationship was very difficult because essentially my husband came from a background that was just as destructive and, and sad. Um, and, um, you know, it was just very hard. Um, but I've grown so much, you know, uh, since, so I've been working with my current therapist for, let's see, so since, since 2013. Uh, so that is almost seven years yeah seven years gosh wow it, it's weird it's weird because right? we're not very good at dates and then you get it and you're like whoa that's a long time yeah. I um I just wanted to say that when you said um I was about to say when you were talking about like like uh 
all these years of living and you've just had to kind of get on with it. And exactly what, what you said, survival mode is exactly mm-hmm. what I was thinking. I was about to say, and then you went survival mode. And it was just one of those moments where it was just like, ding, our brains are thinking the same. And mm-hmm. I just wanted to say that um, and highlight that the fact that you, you know, you, you didn't just let it get on top of you. You just, you just went and the resilience that I can see from your story and you just keep going and you keep going and then you have one therapist and you know it's not right. So you change and then you know it's not right and you change. Yeah. It's just so, such a, an amazing thing to see. And I really think that people were to resonate with that, that just because we, we're told to, to carry on, you know, carry on with what you've got. And you didn't do that. You didn't settle. You just kept going because you want to give yourself the best life. Mm-hmm. And I, I just think that's real. I just really wanted to highlight that. Thank you. Well, like I said, I, I really am driven by something inside a force mm-hmm. inside really it's just me I can't yeah. not do that it's just it's just my nature you know um I mean what do I do if I give up I can't give up yeah you know um the the state of once you uh my my mother once said to me this was when I was an adult she said to me don't go to a mental institution they they don't it's not good. And why would my mother say something like that to me? She felt the same way about herself. Mm. There's really nowhere else to go. You know, um, mental institutions are basically awful places. I'm yeah. sure there's some that do a lot of good. I'm sure that they are. there are some that are really improving and, and really doing a lot of good work. But traditionally, it was just a, a warehouse for, you know, mentally incapacitated people and just not a nice place to be and people just didn't want to go there so I knew there was no nobody we're living in a society where there's an there's a a a bias towards you know this sort of like uh you know you're you're on your own basically uh, yeah exactly Mm-hmm. Do or die. Uh, do or die. Uh, get on with it. Yeah, get on with it. Oh, that's the that's the famous line. Just get on with it. Oh, I, I wish I could. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, the the problem is that most people can do that without. Yeah, yeah. Automatically. Mm-hmm. That we don't. That we can't. People like us can't, and that is so hard. Yeah. For people don't have this property to understand. That's why I've always thought that um, if you, you can't get, um, I lost my train of thought. Uh, I'll, I'll remember it. I'll remember it. Don't worry. Uh, that uh, happens to me every day. So uh, that's, that's uh, you don't need to worry about that. Thing? <laughs> yeah, that's definitely an ADHD thing. Definitely. That happens to me every single day. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah. Well, um, so, you know, I mean, obviously there's a lot more to these stories, but mm. I think I'm, you know, I'm pretty, I've gotten pretty much to the point where I've, you know, explained my journey uh, and where I, where I was and where I am now. So 
Um, you have any sp specific questions? Yeah, I just, uh, I have one more question. And that is, so how, how do you kind of, after all these years and kind of living with the knowledge now that you've had ADHD for a long time, how do you kind of manage that now? Well, I, first of all, I have not been able, I've tried to do freelance work, but you know, I, it never really occurred to me how vulnerable freelance or gig workers are mm -hmm. because you don't have any protection. If no. people, if somebody says something that, you know, or you do something they don't like, goodbye. <laughs> As if, you know, you're an afterthought and you're gone. Uh, and, you know, I've tried also, I know that, I mean, especially after the illnesses that I've had, I suppose that I should just go through them for, for the record. Um, yeah, I, share I, whatever you would like. Um, well, in um, June, uh, sorry, August of 2013, first of all, we had just bought and moved into our home. Yeah. Um, the very first home that we ever owned. Oh. And, um, it was incredibly stressful for me because my mother did not want us to, um, she wanted us to stay living in a small, you know, yeah. apartment uh, and rent. Um, and because she, she was always like that. She, she lived through the depression and she, she never got over that either. She was a child during the depression. So she's always terrified of being left without any money. Yeah. Um, you know, and of course being thrown out on your butt. Uh, but um, so I had to overcome that terror as well. Um, I mean, my mother and I were always extremely close, even though we weren't living in the same place. Um, I didn't have, the, I still didn't have, even after all, that, you know, decades of therapy, I still was so connected to her. Um, but basically the trauma of that, and then my my uncle, my father's brother, who, a lifelong bachelor also, um, he, uh, he was dying basically. And it was, my mother didn't want anything to do with having to take care of him because as far as she was concerned, she would expect him to do what he did, uh, what she did, which is to make sure that everything, every single tiny thing uh, about her end of life situation would be completely taken care of. So my sister and I wouldn't have to worry about anything. Mm. And that's, you know, and she didn't, she thought, you know, uh, that he should have handled that on his own before things got out of control, but, she, but he couldn't, he didn't. Um, and so I was, you know, it's, it's, a, you know, funerals are very, very expensive. Oh, yeah, they are, and, sure. Um, my mother was determined not to, uh, so determined not to pay for his funeral. She was so angry about, you know, his irresponsibility mm. and her, in contrast to her responsibility. Um, 
that she didn't care if he was cremated. Um, and according to Jewish law, that's forbidden. Um, and um, I knew that Ju the, you know, my, my uncle uh, spent the last decades of his life as an observant Jew. Um, and I knew that, that I couldn't let that happen. And it was really tough. My sister and I drove down to Philadelphia where he was living several times. And I had to find, I had to find the lawyer that he had made a will with, you know, some 30 years ago or something. And thank God I finally found the brother uh, who was a rabbi and he helped us out a lot, but the whole thing was extremely stressful because mm. we had to make all the plans and the rabbi was extremely helpful. Um, but the next month in August, I started having these symptoms. First of all, my, my, there were sort of like random pains in my joints, like one day, one day it would be in my right fingers and next in my left, next day in my left fingers, you know, but I also started getting short of breath. And I was, I said to my husband at one point, cause I was walking and I, I, I would get out of breath very quickly. I was like, honey, this is not something there wrong. I think we need to go to the hospital. It turned out that I had something called pericarditis, which is um, <coughs> the pericardium is a protective membrane that surrounds the heart muscle. And then pericarditis, and this happens to people with autoimmune diseases like lupus, especially. Okay. Um, it's very rare. Um, but what happens is fluid, it's, it's, it's an inflammatory condition. Fluid starts to build up between mm. the pericardium and the heart muscle and if you, if it's not treated a, a lot of times apparently it gets resolved on its own mine didn't um i was in the hospital for a whole week and they were watching they were trying to treat me medically first um but it wasn't working so i had to do this they had to do this thing called interventional radiology where they actually had to to use a laparoscopic probe to go in, this it went under under my rib cage by the solar plexus, and then had to loop the thing all the way around my left shoulder. So oh my goodness. Long. And all they gave me was morphine. And supposedly that that, you know, I was awake for them. I was like, well, I can feel that. But oh. eventually they drained 600 milliliters of fluid. Wow. And it was already, what happens if you don't treat it, it strangles your heart and you die. Okay. Wow. So I got this close to dying, basically. Um, <coughs> and then the following summer, uh, June 2014, I noticed that I was menstruating very heavily and, and it wouldn't stop. So I went to see my gynecologist and they did a biopsy and they told me I had endometrial cancer. Um, fortunately, it was caught very, very early, very early stage, but I did have a hysterectomy. Oh then, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then two months later, um, actually I had this, this psychiatrist that I um, got the diagnosis of ADHD from, he was, behaving so inappropriately 
and he was stressing me out so badly. I think this triggered, um, I mean, I think it was brewing in the first place, but it mm. triggered uh, what uh, an autoimmune disease. Um, my 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 um, joints were hurting, but then my left knee and ankle really swelled up. Mm. So I, uh, you know, my Jeep, my, uh, you know, made general practitioner doctor um, told me I need to see a rheumatologist. So I knew of one. So I went to her and I got a diagnosis of something called granulomatosis with polyangiitis, which oh is a very, oh. very rare form of, I would, uh, it's a general, it belongs to a general ca um, category called vasculitis where your, your, your uh, own immune system attacks the epithelium in your blood vessels. Um, so, you know, I've had several treatments for it. Um, but, uh, you know, and there have been, you know, serious bumps along the road. Yeah. I recently changed rheumatologists because this woman that I was going to was just, I was appalled at her behavior. So, mm -hmm. and she didn't like me at all. So, whatever. Yeah, again, you're showing your resilience and going somewhere else that's different to where you were going before. <laughs> it's, it's just so, like, crazy how the mind and the body are so aligned. And you oh, said yeah. like one of them, you know, brought on the other. And it's just, that's an, another huge impact that we're only just starting to really touch mm -hmm. on. And it's yeah. just so mm. mindfulness and just, it's just so crucial. It is. It really is. Actually, um, my sister used to go see this. She was all into the alternative medicine. She, she actually trained to work as a reflexologist, but um, she found this practitioner she was a, a, a chiropractor, but she also did a lot of the healing arts on her own. So she was, she used all of that in her work. And the, uh, I went to her a few times and the last time I went to her, she said, if you don't start loving yourself, you're going to die. She said that. And I knew to take it seriously. Because yeah, first of yeah. all, I've been learning on my own about the body-mind connection. Um, but also, uh, this woman is amazing. She, um, you know, this kind of, the kind of work she does doesn't get popular support, nor can you get uh, insurance to cover it because it's too alternative. It's too, you know, outside the mainstream. But... Um, Anyway, but I, you know, part of when I was going through all these illnesses, I start, I said to myself, I have to do yoga again. I had never done yeah. it like really seriously, but I knew it was very healing. And in yoga, I, I learned Ayurveda is a 5,000 year old healing art that originated in India. It's 5,000 years old. And they're just figuring out that all the stuff they knew 5,000 years ago is being medically and scientifically brought back, uh, ver um, uh, confirmed today. Yeah. But it, it, you know, the same, same thing with Chinese medicine that's thousands of years old. The West 
has done a, a terrible thing mm-hmm. by um, ignoring this. In yeah, fact, yeah. I, I, the point where I feel like it's they're they're being willfully ignorant and therefore incredibly irresponsible and not taking care of patients. Um, it makes me very angry. Uh, but the thing is, you know, it's an institution that's going to change. If it, it, it's not one person that's going to change it. It has to be, it has to be a, and is it, there are people out there. There are MDs out there traditionally yeah, trying to change it. I mean, Deepak Chopra is probably the most famous of all of these, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and probably does, has done a lot to um, bring um, Ayurveda into medical, you know, medical treatment. I yes. 100% agree. And I, um, wow, it's funny, like what goes around comes around, it, it come all comes back around, you know, even everything we're learning about ADHD, it's been there before. And it's, uh, it's all well, most of it. And it, we're just starting to really touch upon things. And it's just incredible how it spirals round and round. Mm-hmm. And um, I just want to say, Miriam, is there anything that you kind of want to any anything that you want to leave the the listeners with yeah um i'm do, a lot of people may think that you know i'm i'm being very brave and i appreciate compliment um to me this is absolutely necessary and it may be because i don't think conventionally um and that you know it's be, it i know uh, through experience that I cannot function the way I'm, the way people are expected to in the neurotypical world. Plus I have all the trauma, which has really devastated my body and my mind in many, many ways. I, I, I feel like I have a mission to tell my story in the hopes that people will start to understand how important, you know, these, these things that have been ignored in Western society are so critical uh-huh. uh, for healthy child development. Um, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot going on now, much more than there ever was before. Um, one, one of many resources I would say was very influential was the Harvard Center for the Developing Child. If you go to their website, you just, you see just how critical the uh, first seven years of uh, a child's life uh, is critical. The environment is critical to healthy brain development and abuse or neglect can adversely affect it so that these kids come out. uh, That's where the cycle of poverty comes from. It just keeps getting transmitted from generation to generation um you know because it goes hand in hand it abuse uh um a, a early childhood abuse just you know, basically healthy connections in the brain that are supposed to form in a healthy mother-child relationship they don't form and it leaves people with and i think adhd is a major outcome of, of that. Um, it, I'm not saying it's, you know, I can't make generalizations, but well, it is a generalization. In other words, you know, everyone's different. 
And, you know, no one, no two stories are exactly the same, but this is, this has been shown scientifically now. Um, and it's those first years of, we can't continue in a society uh, that basically chucks you out on, on your own, you know, uh, you know, live or die. I don't give a shit. You know, um, that's basically what we're living yeah. in. Truth. Um, so uh, it, it's so critical that people understand this because if 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 this if this is take if this kind of stuff is taken to heart and really begin put into practice in society, then the whole world will be better. And I, I need to do this. That's about it. <laughs> That's... Wow, I'm just so amazed by that last that thought. Like, I just 100% agree. 100%. And the whole time she was speaking, I was like, in awe, like, like if you could see my face, I was just staring because that is just the absolute truth there. And <laughs> I really hope that, and I'm really just honoured that you, that you chose this platform to come and speak your truth and, and speak that because it is necessary it is necessary to show our stories and it's so important especially mm -hmm. that the fact that you've come on to discuss trauma which is so sadly missed I feel and it's and that you've been so honest to share that is uh I think it's been a huge a huge piece that of the puzzle that's not really been on that I've not really heard much about and mm -hmm. if anything comes from this it's that people have heard your story and if this reaches one twenty a hundred people it's yeah. touched someone because it, mm -hmm. I know it has me. Mm -hmm. So thank, thank you so much, Miriam. Thank you so much. I, I'm I'm also really I'm so excited that we found each other, me you too. and I, um, through the through the Indigo support group. Um, and I also we should also talk about that suggestion I had where Indigo and ADHD. What are the connections? And we what definitely are the will be, that's definitely definitely a discussion we'll have to get you back on to discuss that <laughs> so i uh i just yeah i just want to say thank you and um and i hope that you you come back next week and uh listeners and that we that you come back and we listen to series two and hopefully we can get some more of series one on this year because we leave Indigos with a inspirational yet but yet relatable story that I know so many people will be able to relate to this. Mm. So I thank you, Miriam, for giving us that that gift. Thank you, Sasha. Thank you for the opportunity. I really it means a lot to me. And it means thank a lot to us. Thank you. I uh, just want to say for out of today's episode, please reach out if you would like to share your story with others, because just like it has today it can really make the biggest difference, not only in your own life, but in others. So signing out, Indigos, see you soon and have a good week. And just remember that we are great and we can make that difference. And we're out. Dear Diary. Dear Diary. Dear Diary. Today is ending. I'll check in again tomorrow. Tomorrow is a brand new beginning. Good night, sweet dreams. I think tomorrow will be 
Shh.